Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a physician assistant from America called Tracy Bingerman. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you for coming on. Do you want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. So as you said, my name is Tracy Bingaman. I am a PA in the US times 11 years. I am also an entrepreneur. I coach other PAs to have more time, more money and more energy than they could ever need. I personally walked through burnout, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later, and realized that the healthcare system was making me sick and so burned out that I wasn't showing up well for my husband or my five kids. Um, so I eventually quit my job and gave me the margin in my life to heal and recover from burnout. Bless you. Thank you. I found you online as your Monaco, the money PA. And that really interested me. I think there is something different between America and the UK in terms of how we talk about money and the earning potential of PAs and also just the way the healthcare systems work uh, in terms of wages and that kind of thing. Do you want to start just telling us a little bit about your training as a PA, where you grew up, where you worked and how you got started in the profession? Sure. So I knew I wanted to be a PA when I was 16 years old. I had parents who were very proactive about saying like, what's your life plan, kid? You got to be doing something. And what is that thing? Because I knew I wanted to do PA as a career at a young age, I went to a PA program called DeSales University, which I grew up in very rural Maine, middle of nowhere, very, very northeast corner of the country, and moved about 500 miles away to go to school, did my undergrad and my graduate degree there. And ever since then, I've worked in surgery. So I've been a PA 11 years. I've done general surgery at a small community hospital, general surgery at a university health network, urology surgery, doing robot and inpatient management of urology patients. And now I do um, plastic surgery and aesthetics at an outpatient office. So I've done a little tour of various surgical subspecialties. Surgery is absolutely my first love. Like I loved surgery before I loved my husband. I loved surgery before I loved any of my children. Um, and someday I'll go back to the OR, I think, when my kids are not quite so young and getting home for dinner is not a major priority of mine. But that's a little tour through my career. It's really nice to talk to American PAs on the podcast to see how well the profession is established over there and just how sort of almost routine and accepted PAs are into the medical team. We will get there in the UK, I'm sure, but it's still early days for us on this side. Yeah, I think that that takes time and exposure and repetition. And to anyone who's listening who is considering being a PA or is a PA, every single encounter you have with a patient, with a nurse, with a physician colleague, with nurse practitioners, with whoever it is, administrators, Every time you do well, every time you prove your value, every time you do the right thing for a patient, go above and beyond and do that like extra mile unpopular thing, every single time you're doing that, you're helping your own career, but also you're helping the profession at large to be advanced because those are the things that people remember. They won't even remember who you are, but they will remember what you did in some of those situations. Fantastic. Couldn't have put it better myself. I totally agree. <laughs> Would you mind talking to us a little bit about what happened to you at work 
and you mentioned burnout, how you would sort of got to that stage? So I burned out fully and completely uh, about two and a half years ago. And I had always considered myself as someone who was young and healthy and an achiever who could do anything, who didn't need help or care because I was the helper. I was the caregiver. I was the person who was there to take care of other people. So when my urology position, which was actually a really great gig when I started, and I think this happens to a lot of people in medicine, I got in, my hours were decent, my job demands were reasonable, everything was fine, except that every couple of months, my health network bought another hospital or increased my coverage area or the things that I was required to do. So this university health network was just exploding. When I was there, we went from four to 14 hospitals in the course of less than five years. So every time the CEO would buy one of these hospitals and we would expand, he would send this email that said, don't worry, we can afford it. And I didn't care because my paychecks were always clearing. What I was concerned about was who was going to take care of the patients who had urology problems at that other campus because we didn't get more human resources as we got more places to staff. So I went from covering one hospital to two to finally when I left that position, I was covering six hospitals, not physically rounding at everyone, but covering the ER and having to triage patients and make you know transfer arrangements on top of my existing census, which was getting heavier with sicker patients and we were doing more major cancer operations. So I try to explain this like the frog in the boiling water. If the frog jumps into the boiling water, they say, ah, this is hot, and they jump out. If the frog gets in the pot of water and it's like okay and warm-ish, and then someone turns the heat up a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, the frog boils to death because they don't really realize how hot it's gotten because it was by degrees. And that was the same was true for my position. I got in, it was great. I could get out on time. I could make it home for dinner. I could get my kids from daycare. Fine. I had my youngest actually while I was at that position. My team was amazing, super supportive, full maternity leave, not paid because this the US. Um, But uh, my surgeons were super, they were young dads, they were super understanding if I had to pump or break or, you know, one of the kids was sick. And that way it was great. It wasn't what I was doing. And it wasn't who I was working with. My surgeons were great. My team was amazing. It was this increasing, overwhelming, unreasonable demand that the system and the administration was putting on me. And eventually, it made me really sick, like pneumonia, autoimmune hyperthyroidism, profound, sustained, unrelenting tachycardia that didn't respond to beta blockers. Like I was as sick as I have ever been. And I just thought like, well, I need to take care of myself. I need to do more because that's the answer to burnout is like more. Like I was raising my hand at that time to do projects and to step into leadership roles and to do more because that's how I'm wired. That is my default is to achieve, achieve and do more and just keep moving. And like everything is going to work itself out. And one day I had worked a 12 hour shift. We did 16 hours of call and I was going back for another 12 hour shift. At this time I was averaging 55 to 60 hours a week and we didn't work weekends. So that's five 12 hour days, even on weeks when I wasn't on call. So I was working a ton. I was never home. And I have young kids who sleep like 10 or 11 hours. So the chances of me seeing them awake, not amazing. So I wasn't seeing a whole lot of my family. 
I was really run down, super tired, and something about me that my mom will readily tell you is if I don't get enough sleep, no one wants to be around me. And I'm super emotional. Like someone could say like, oh, your blouse is pretty today. And if I haven't had enough sleep, I'm crying. Like I just have no control over my emotions. So I work 12 hours. I'm on call overnight. I'm headed back to the hospital for another very long day. I was in the ER in the middle of the night. I hadn't slept. And my daughter, who was just one and a half, two at the time, comes out of her bedroom. I'm on my laptop. I'm on the phone with the hospital. And she says, mama up. And she's wearing these footy, you know, comfy pajamas. And she's wiping the sleep out of her eyes. And she's just like, they're so cute before they start throwing tantrums. And I want to pick her up and I want to snuggle her. And she says, mama up. And I've got a guy with Fournier's gangrene. I've got a testicular torsion. I have all these sick people I have to call back and I can't pick her up and I am at my wits end. And so I say, honey, no. And because she's two and doesn't like to be told no and has four older brothers who've taught her some choice words, she looks me in the eye and she says, mama, you're stupid. And I completely lost it. One, I'm exhausted. Two, I'm burned out. And I'm like, she's right. She is absolutely right. This is so stupid that I'm working this job, that I'm just pouring my heart and soul, all of my time, all of my energy, all of my limited resources into this job, that when I raise my hand and say, I need help, they say, keep up the good work. Like, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a one-way street. And then paying me is not enough, right? It wasn't enough. At that point, you could have offered to double my salary. And there was just no way that I could keep doing what I had been doing. It was an unsustainable expectation. What they were asking me to do was above and beyond my coping mechanisms, my physical limitations as one human being, my emotional bandwidth in dealing with really sick patients with cancer or sepsis or like bad stuff that was making them sick. So she called me stupid. I had a nice old meltdown. One of my other kids said to my husband, I think mom needs to go to her room for a timeout because she's overreacting. And I was. (laughs) Um, And my husband said, you have to quit today. And I said, I don't have time to resign today. I have too many patients at too many hospitals. So if that is you and you're like, oh, I couldn't even have a conversation with my manager about adjusting my template or like, I don't have time for lunch or eating or drinking or peeing. Like that's a problem. Like that's not, it's not a sustainable use of the human resources that that practice has. And that human resource is you, right? So burnout is not good for human resources because people leave because they don't feel appreciated and because they feel it's not sustainable, which is ultimately what happened to me. So a week after my daughter called me stupid, after some good nights of sleep and a lot of reflection, I did resign from that job um, with no plan for what's next. And that's the first and only time I've ever done that in my career. And once I resigned, I slept through the night for the first time in easily six to nine months. My body knew like, okay, you're getting out like someday this is going to end. This won't be forever because otherwise I was getting two or three hours of sleep a night, waking up, worrying, stressing about the next day. That job was stealing my physical health, my mental health. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, I had nothing left. I had left it all on the field at work. And I realized If you asked me, I would have said my family matters more. But if you actually looked at the way that I was showing up in the world, that wasn't true in the way that I was acting. And so I quit. (laughs) That's my story about burnout. So getting to that point of you handing your notice in, I I think a lot of us may have 
thought about it or fantasized about it at some point in in any job. The financial risk of doing that is usually the first thing that comes into my head is is the major reason of course you can't quit your job you need you need to pay your bills you need to eat tomorrow yep how did you and with your hat on as the money pa how how did that come about how what did you think about in terms of finances yeah so that was a little bit of a slow burn for us i kind of knew i couldn't keep going at the pace that i was going so i had asked to go part time at work which had come on the tails of a discussion where I sat down with my husband and said, like, here's the budget. If I were to work part time, here's what we'd be able to save. Here's what we'd be able to invest. Like, here's what our like lifestyle discretionary spending would look like. And we had spent the first 10 years of our relationship diligently paying off our mortgage, like keeping our expenses down, being really diligent about, hey, if something happened to one of us, would we be able to live on one income? And because the answer to that question was yes, I could much more readily quit and I would know that we would be fine for anywhere from six to 12 months. The other thing that I had confidence in was my ability to get a job. Like I, if I hadn't landed the job that I have now, I could have worked in the urgent care. The ER was like asking me to work there per diem. I could have picked up at my local family practice office. Like I had other things that after 10 years as a PA, even if they had nothing to do with surgery, I was like, I can learn that. I can learn any specialty. So I knew that my ability to go get a job in the market was high. And so that was reassuring to me that I could go find something, even if it wasn't the thing that was like next in my career to make money if I had to. The thing about money is people are like, oh, like this woman just wants me to have more money. I do. But the reason that I want you to have more money is because I want you to have more choices. So having that financial independence, having that freedom of walking away from your income or cutting it down if you need to cut back or, you know, taking the time that you need to heal or recover, whether it's like mental, physical, emotional, any of those things, money buys you that margin. It gives you the ability to make that decision and to choose based on what's actually best for you and your family, not like the next best choice because you still need money and you have to stay in a situation that's compromising your health. So I would say everyone needs to know about their finances. If you exist in this world in partnership, it cannot be the other person's responsibility to know that you are financially okay. They can do the budget, they can do the check writing, but they could not be the only vote. So you need to have a vote. You need to know what's going on. Everyone needs a budget because my personal view is that if you don't have a budget, you'll spend and oh, by the way, save. And what a budget does is it means that you save and invest first. And then strategically, before the month starts, before you've actually earned that money, you've said, hey, what's important to us? What are we going to spend money on this month? Like we need to eat, you know, the kids need this, we need to upgrade that. And you go down and spend that money on things that matter to you. So a budget is deciding where your money is going to go instead of wondering where it went. Because we've all had those months where we weren't organized, we didn't make a plan. And at the end of the month, you're sort of like, what happened? Like, where did it all go? You know, and, and maybe you didn't enjoy it because you didn't really spend it on purpose. Um, so a budget is super key. I mean, the basic, basic principle is if you can have your income, higher than your expenses so that you have margin to save and invest and be prepared for emergencies. If you do that, 
starting this month. Even if you're deeply in debt, if you do that starting this month, eventually you'll get to zero and eventually you'll get to wealth. But you can't do it if you're regularly spending what you make or more than you make, because that's how you dig a really big hole that's harder to get out of. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. What does wealth mean to you? What does, in terms of financial planning and security, what does it, how do you define that term? So to me, wealth is really that freedom to make whatever decision you need. So I didn't think I was going to get burned out. But whether it's burnout or a kid who gets cancer or an ailing parent or something that happens that compromises your ability to work and earn the same amount of money next week as you made last week, when those things happen, wealth helps you to have the margin to take care of what needs to be taken care of and really to live a life according to your values. I I sort of refuse to accept this I got out of school, I have major debt, I'm going to spend my whole life paying it off. And then eventually, someday, I'm going to retire and collect Social Security. Like that is not a plan. So you know, you are responsible for your own financial destiny. And then the other thing that really comes to mind when you say what is wealth is that it really often is not about money. It's about the richness of your life and what you make of the moments that you have with people that you love. I think our three most limited resources as PAs or as just human beings are time, money, and energy. And so everyone listening to the show absolutely needs a plan for their money, but they also need a plan for their time and their energy because how you spend your time and how you manage your energy means that you get to enjoy that money with people that you love. Because if you have piles and piles of money, but you're working 60 hour weeks and you're never home to see your kids, or you're just too exhausted when you finally have time with them, then that time isn't really valuable. So what do you value? And like, for me, that comes down to what do I value personally? What do we value as a family? And are we living in alignment with those values? And even further, do you have a job that either shares your values or lets you live out your values. So sometimes your job is not this like fulfilling, like I agree with everything that they're doing. Administration and I are best friends, but it gives me the schedule that I need. It pays me the money that I need in order to live my life according to my own set of values at home. Sometimes we put too much pressure on our jobs to be like the thing that fulfills us and pays us and has an ideal schedule. Like it's hard to find that unicorn job. They exist, but that your sense of fulfillment and your ability to have fun and joy and happiness in this world is not directly tied to your job or what you do there. Thanks, Tracy. A lot of what you're saying is really hitting home for me, and I'm sure will be resonating for a lot of other physician associates listening to this episode as well. Do you have any advice on how to confront those difficult conversations, whether that's talking to your partner about, hey, I, I want to quit my job, or whether it's a difficult conversation with your boss about your workload and needing to change that? They're awkward conversations to think about having, let alone actually sitting in and doing it. How, how do you get through that? I 
am a coach that helps clients with this, and this is something that I struggle with. So I love to put these conversations off and get in my own head about how my partner's just gonna like shoot me down, or my boss is gonna completely think that my idea is like so ridiculous, they're gonna laugh me out of the room, right? So zero times have those two things ever happened. But when we build this conversation up to be like, oh, this is a negotiation. Oh, this is like a deal breaker, like huge deal conversation. We build it up to be huge. Then we get in our head and then we just avoid it altogether. We do something called like, oh, I'm preparing, right? Well, preparing is a form of procrastination, right? If you've been preparing for this conversation for like days or weeks or even months, like you're actually procrastinating. You're not actually moving towards that conversation. The conversation does not have to be perfect. And it's also okay to just say to them like, hey, I'm not exactly sure how to navigate this, but what we've been doing doesn't feel like it's working for me. Could we sit down and have a conversation about possible changes, right? That's like four sentences, like setting it up, getting a time on the calendar, and then you have a deadline, right? Okay, so now it's next Tuesday noon. Okay, next Tuesday at noon, I'm gonna sit down with my boss and I'm gonna talk about this. Well, what do you want? Like, what's the ideal best case scenario? You walk out of that room and you're like cartwheeling because you're so happy they gave you the schedule. They cut down your template. They said like, this is very reasonable. Of course, we want to keep you. Go part-time, whatever you want. Like, whatever. If they say yes to everything, what do you walk out of that room with like, this is what we did? And then I want you to rate those things. Like, if they only say yes to one thing, I need to adjust my hours. If they say yes to two things, I need less patience a day. If they say yes to three things, I need protected administrative time. So what are those top three things in order? And then the other thing that's really good to have prepared before you walk into that room is how you add value to that practice. This is sometimes hard to see about ourselves, but if you had a best friend who had a job and they did that job just the way that you do your job and they said, hey, what do you think? How am I doing? And you said, well, you're doing this and you're answering this and you're covering this inbox and you're you know, running M&M and you're doing whatever. All of these things that you're doing, especially if they're non-revenue generating, like things that just take up your time where you're not directly taking care of patients, those have value to the practice. So part of this is just bolstering you so that you feel better and more confident about the value that you add to that practice before you walk in the door. And part of it is a little bit of ammunition, right? You take that in with you and you say, I love working here. So you're sitting down, your boss's name is Joe. You're like, Joe, I love working here. The past five years have been a pleasure. My patients are amazing. Like, you know, we just do so well. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. So you start from a position of gratitude. I don't want you to be insincere, but I do want you to be grateful for this opportunity that's been given to you. And then you say, there's some things that if we could make it better, you know, this is what I would need to see changed. Or if you're really at that point of like, I'm burned out, I'm about to quit unless we make changes, I wouldn't go in threatening that, but it's okay as a human being to say, I've really been struggling with the amount of work. I've really been struggling with how many patients I'm seeing. My patients are more complicated than ever. People are more demanding than ever. This is why I'm struggling. Here's what I need. It's okay to say, here's what I need as a part of this conversation. Like, here's what I need, you know, reduced hours, more money, like more, uh, you know, more clerical support, whatever it is that you need. And I think this would benefit. And this is a piece that most people miss. I think this would benefit our practice and our patients because, 
if you get nothing else out of this conversation, I think this would benefit our practice and our patients because people would have more time with me. There would be more available appointments, like whatever I would start to generate more revenue, whatever it is that you think that the practice and the patients would benefit from. And you know what your practice values because it's the thing that they keep talking about, right? It's the thing they're measuring. It's the metrics they keep bringing up in meetings. It's the thing that matters to them. So bonus points, if that is what you're saying when you say, I think it could benefit our practice and our patients because of this reason. So you're like, thank you for this opportunity. Here's what I need to change. Here's how it would benefit our practice. And then I don't want you to leave that meeting without a plan for another meeting. If you haven't been able to reach a conclusion and they say, I have to talk to so-and-so or check this or do the thing. Great. When are we going to meet to talk about this again? Or if that person does have the ability to implement changes in your pay and your schedule and all the things that you've asked about, a plan. So how are we going to do this? is the most powerful question that you can ask once someone says yes. Oh, yes, James, we'll give you whatever you want. Great, because that yes is worthless without a plan for implementation. So how are we going to do this? When are we going to start it? Who needs to be on board, right? What needs to change about the schedule? Do we need to reschedule patients or we're just going to start it in two months? Like, when will I start to see this reflected in my paycheck? And People get really nervous asking those questions because they're like, they're going to think I'm ridiculous and demanding. And like, I'm like, just like, when are you going to pay me more? Like, when can I expect those changes to be reflected in my paycheck is an honest, reasonable question about the details of executing what you have agreed upon. So like, have this conversation, you know, be kind, be genuine, be grateful, but also don't be a doormat because there's a lot of administrators that will say like, yes, I agree. No. Yes, I agree is not a plan. Yes, I agree is like now it's time to make a plan. And if we don't have time to make a plan right now, like how about next Tuesday we meet again and talk about the plan for implementing this? Because a lot of people, you'll get in a staff meeting, you raise your hand, there's a problem with this. They're like, yes, there is. That doesn't change anything. They like, they're like, oh yeah, I see that problem and I'm not going to help you fix it. What you really want out of this conversation of negotiating, like we're sort of talking specifically at work, but it's true at home too, um, is a yes and. A yes and a plan for implementation so that you know what to expect. Because if you don't have a plan for implementation, you're walking around six months later like, I thought we were going to do the thing and it never happened. And now I'm just mad and more resentful than I was before we had this conversation. So you need a yes and. Um, and also ask more questions. Like if they say yes and you're like, okay, yes to the whole thing, yes to shorter days on Wednesday, yes to one less patient a day, like specify what the plan is so that you know, so that they know. When you're unclear, it's unkind, right? Because then you're mad and they're mad and no one knows what the actual plan is. So, you know, walking out of that meeting and, and going into the meeting with the intention of leaving with a yes and a plan or no, and then you make your plan if you, you know that no is gonna lead to you making some changes. But either way, you need to have like, if this in your mind, great, this is how, and, and you know a little bit, oh, we have to change the schedule, we have to you know call patients, we have to do the thing. And if it's a no, you know, maybe it's time for you to move on. Like maybe you pull back a little bit and stop volunteering for so many opportunities because they told you that you couldn't make more money or whatever it is. But the conversation 
is literally just one more meeting on their calendar. It's only a big deal to you because you're you. <laughs> so everyone is the main character in their own story. And we build up these conversations to be like, oh, then I'm going to talk to them about this. And really like, this is one more thing on their to-do list. They're not that emotionally invested in this, but it's affecting your everyday life. So it feels like I got to get this. I've got to get this figured out. And the one other thing that I wish I had done differently professionally in leading up to these conversations I have a tendency to avoid them until I get to that point. I've got to have this conversation. I can't keep going like this. If you see the problem coming sooner and have the conversation sooner, you're less emotionally like at the end of your rope when you do go to sit down. Amazing advice. Thank you. And I, I think you're right when you say that boss, that administrator, whoever you're talking to, you will be one of the 70 meetings that they've had that week. And if they've been a boss for 10 years, they would have had chats like that. Yep. Numerous occasions with with other employees. For you, it could be the first time you're ever having to make that decision and it can feel like a very big deal to you, but to them, it will be a routine part of their job. The other thing that's important, specifically when we're talking about PAs and having these conversations in a professional setting, you already know how to do this, right? You know how to tell someone some bad pathology, you know how to review imaging with them, you know how to have hard conversations, but usually they're not about you. And that's the part where we get hung up. Like this is about me, this is about my schedule, my salary, my career, my trajectory at this practice. So you already have the skills to sort of like have a hard conversation, like tell some truths that someone maybe doesn't want to hear. These are just those skills applied in a different manner. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic point. To end the episode, hopefully on a happy note, how has your experience of burnout changed you as a person? And are you in a good place at the moment? Do you think it's something that you're more aware of and you might see coming if it happens again? Have you Have you had a positive sort of learning experience having gone through it? Yeah. So I don't think that burnout is something that we can be immune to, even if we've been infected in the past, right? So I had burnout. I burned out big time. Now I spend a lot of my time teaching and talking about burnout. I think that what I learned about burnout is that my body was first whispering and then saying and then yelling and then sort of refusing to continue on at the rate that I was going. And I, I do think I'm much more in tune with my own exhaustion, my own immune system, my own energy level. Do I feel aligned? Are these projects and things that I'm saying yes to things that I want to do or things that I feel obligated to do? I'm healing. <laughs> like I'm like a person who's healing and who still has those underlying tendencies of you know, going too hard and committing to too many things and being too excited about helping everybody else avoid burnout that I burn out again. Like that's a real possibility. But I do, I am more aware mentally and physically how I'm doing. If someone really close to me said, hey, I'm worried about you, I would say, okay. And I would take the time to really check in with myself, check in how I'm doing. Then I think people were saying, hey, we're concerned about you. And I was like, I'm fine. Like I was like mind over matter trying to make it like I'm not burned out. I am so much more present of a mom now who occasionally still scrolls on her phone while she's hanging out with her kids. But mostly I show up better for my kids. I can sleep at night. I am, you know, working on my nutrition and, you know, exercising and making sure that I am doing the things that I can do 
to mitigate the risk factors. So just like in healthcare, there's like modifiable and unmodifiable risk factors for disease process. Like I can't change my genetics. I can't really change the way that my brain is sort of hardwired. I can change the way I implement that, you know, achiever mentality. I can change the number of things that I commit to. I can be intentional about blocking my calendar. Like I have a block on my calendar for the three hours that my kids are getting ready for school and on the bus sort of structured my life now in a way that like family comes first. That's the default. And I mean, my kids were pretty young when I got burned out, but I do think if you asked my older boys, like, Hey, how is mom now? As opposed to three years ago, they would say like, Oh, more fun and like more available. And I'm a better wife. I just, I am a more whole healed human being who acknowledges my own humanity now. I think before I didn't think that I could be human. I didn't think that I could ask for help or care or support because I had always been the one who provided that help and care and support to other people. Like no one goes into medicine for the glory, right? Like no one is, maybe surgeons, okay? I work with surgeons. So maybe surgeons go into it for the glory, but really even surgeons go into it because they want to take care of other people. So we self-select as this group of people who are achievers, who can get good grades, who can get things done, and who want to take care of other people. I recently read a book about burnout that said it sort of redefined people-pleasing as the human giver syndrome, which I think as caregivers, we do a lot, right? Like we give, 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 give. And then someone's like, you should take care of yourself. And you're like, that's weird, right? Like, that's not what I'm wired to do. That's not, that's not, you know, how I am. So, you know, finding a way to figure out what you need to thrive. And this is different for everyone. Like I thrive getting up early and I thrive going to bed early. Like I know that about myself. That's not true for everyone, but like What makes you thrive and how can you set up habits so that you are thriving more? I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned since I burned out is like, you can't just keep going and going in the face of illness. Like you, you have to slow down. Your body will make you slow down. I mean, eventually you will hit a wall, but if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm headed there. Like, can you tap the brakes? Can you find a way to not hit that wall, not all the way burn out and dial it back so that you can continue to function and let your body heal and rest and recover? It's like you say, it's advice we would give our patients if we were dealing with somebody who was complaining of symptoms of anxiety and stress and overload and, and burnout. We would be the first ones to suggest what they need to do to improve their health and well-being. But whether we follow that advice ourselves is often quite difficult. Yeah, it's and it's even now for me as a coach and as a podcaster and as a thought leader in this space, I as I'm think as I'm saying this like, oh, I've set my schedule up. I'm like, well, you know, last week I did have a call during my kids' bedtime. You know, like no one is doing this perfectly. Like no one has this perfectly figured out like, oh, I burned out. I quit my job. The next day I was healed and now I'm better. Like no, it was months of actual physical recovery. It's years of mentally retraining my mind for like, what is success? Like, how do I define success? And like, how do I lean into success? Like when I die, they're not going to say like, she was a great PA. 
I mean, just like exceptional. Like she did so much for the PA profession. Like they might add that as like an, oh, by the way. But what I really would rather them say is like, wow, like her kids, like her husband, like she loved them. She showed up for them. She was there. Like if you think about what some people are going to say about you when you're gone, was today a good reflection of that? Like was this week a good reflection of that? And for me, three years ago, the answer to that is absolutely not. Like that just makes you human. That just makes you on a journey. Like don't feel badly if, especially working in healthcare, like culturally we breed for burnout. Like we don't treat each other respectfully. Like there's a whole lot that I would love to see changed about the mindset of working in healthcare. Like you can work in healthcare as just your job. It doesn't have to be this all-consuming passion. It doesn't have to be the thing that gets you up in the morning. Like it can literally be what you do that you are really great at and then you leave and you leave it there and you don't take your laptop home and you get to have this full rich life outside of what you do professionally. Like that is possible. People are doing it. It's not common, but it is a possibility. Preach, preach it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> Tracy, thank you so much for joining me on the PA podcast today. Really appreciate you giving up the time and it's been wonderful getting to know you and hearing your story. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Do you want to give a shout out for your social media and your own PA podcast as well? Sure. So if you like podcasts about PAs and you want to learn about what it's like in the US or you just like to hear me talk, you can find me on the PA is in um, or on YouTube, anywhere you find your podcasts. I'm on LinkedIn, Tracy Bingaman and all the social media handles. I'm Mrs. Tracy Bingaman. So I would love to, you know, you know, give a follow, let me know how you found me. And I would love to hear about your career and sort of what you're struggling with because you are not alone. Absolutely. I'll leave links to all your social media channels and your amazing The PA is in podcast. I really recommend people check that out as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope you really enjoyed hearing from Tracy about her story of burnout and her tips and advice for how to keep successful and have those difficult conversations. If you've got any ideas for future episodes of The PA podcast, please get in touch with me. I'm on social media at PA Podcast UK. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Precision Associate Podcast.